Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a long sought-after guest, uh, Marilyn J. Rusink. She's a professor of plant pathology and environmental microbiology, the Biology Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics, the Huck Institute of Life Sciences. So, Marilyn, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Yeah. Well, if you would uh, tell me about your, your, what got you into working with viruses, you know, why are you interested in them, and you know, a little bit about your background. Sure. So um, I started off thinking about maybe a medically related career, um, and I took a course as an undergraduate in microbiology, and I met my first virus, which was a bacteriophage, many people know, called Lambda. I was so impressed that this little thing, just a little piece of DNA, essentially, could make so many dramatic changes in its host. And I kind of had an epiphany. I fell in love with viruses. I decided to become a virologist. So that's how it all started. And then, so what, what kind of highlights have you had in your career so far? What like super interesting things have you, have you worked? So, well, I mean, a career is usually a, a set of small steps. Um, they're not all that many huge leaps, but you know, they kind of lead you to new places and new ideas. So, um, I studied virus evolution. I started working on virus evolution pretty early in my career because I, I, I thought that viruses would be a great model because they evolve so rapidly. You know, you can phase under the right selection. And so that was my original interest in that field was just to look at how they might change. And with the advent of cloning or making infectious clones of viruses, which happened in the 1980s, um, there were a lot of new things that could be done. So we we could start with a clone of a virus and then watch how it changed over time. So I did a number of studies like that, just watching them accumulate um, mutations, kind of verifying the, the hypothesis that viruses, RNA viruses, have these very diverse populations. In our studies, that was true. Um, so we use plant viruses for these studies because there's a much easier system to work on than, in, than animal systems. Um, plants are easy to grow, cheap. And they don't mind when they get put in the blender either. So uh, they're just a lot easier to deal with. Um, so I, so we made some pretty uh, interesting observations about that. And what we found, which was not really predicted, was that a level of variation in a virus population was really linked to the host. So plant viruses, I, I worked on a virus for a long time called cucumber mosaic virus. And that virus um, infects about 1,200 different species of plants. So we could compare virus populations, starting with a clone, looking at how the population developed with different host plants. And um, I think nobody expected it to be different in different host plants, but it was dramatically different. And we found that the host plant had a lot to do with the error rate of the virus, the amount of mutations it incorporated. So um, that was kind of a big part early in my career. Um, And then we began to look at also host roles in other aspects of evolution, like recombination. So viruses tend to recombine their genomes and make new 
viruses pretty readily. That's also um, very dependent on the host. So there is, of course, much more work that could be done in that area to try to tease out exactly what parts of the host are responsible for that. Um, I guess in my own way of thinking, I always got a little bored with a project when I got to the too much of the nitty gritty detail. And I tried to pass those things on to people that had been in my lab and left so that they could keep working on it and I could start something new. Um, so I did that a number of times. And I, but when we were working on these populations, I was very interested to look at a virus that was what I now would call a persistently transmitted virus. So there are most of the viruses you've ever heard about and that people study are acute viruses. They infect a host and they go through this whole replication cycle. And then most often the host is cured of the virus by either just by its immune system overcoming the virus or, or the virus sort of runs out its life cycle. Um, but there are these viruses that are persistent that infect the host forever. They're passed vertically. Um, so they don't have any horizontal transmission. They just go from, you know, um, parent to offspring for thousands of years in plants, we find these. And then they're also quite common in fungi. So I thought it would be fun to look at virus populations of fungal viruses because they're almost always have this persistent lifestyle. So I got a collection of fungi from uh, some colleagues of mine who were working in Yellowstone National Park. And they had, um, they had found this fungus that was required for the plants to grow in geothermal soil. So when they were colonized by this fungus, they could grow in soils of up to like 50 degrees centigrade, which is much hotter than plants can really tolerate. So they, they sent me this collection. And so some of them were from the geothermal soils and some were not. And I noticed when I was looking for viruses in them that the ones from geothermal soil always had a particular virus, whereas the ones that were not from geothermal soil, but the same uh, genus and species of fungus, they didn't always have the virus. So um, that led us to work on, to take a closer look at that. And it turned out that the virus was absolutely required for thermal tolerance. So you have to have the virus, the fungus, and the plant, all three together, in order to grow in those hot soils. And so yeah. um, that I've was me. Quick, quick question here. Um, I was thinking about the viruses you said that are transmitted from, you know, parents to offspring. Right. And in particular plants, you know, they produce a seed. I mean, a seed is kind of like a virus. It has no locomotion of its own usually. And, you know, I don't know, you could say, I mean, it's, you know, people w would say it's, they say a plant's alive. No one's going to say a plant's not alive. But in its seed form, the plant's kind of in this, like, intermediate state. And I hear the same thing about viruses. A lot of people say viruses are not alive. Some say they are. And when it's in, in its very on stage, you know, you is it alive then or is it only contingently alive when it's inside a cell? But I was also wondering, like, what, what happens when um, a plant is infected by a persistent virus and, you know, it goes to the seed form? What does the virus look like when it's in the seed? It, it's probably not in an active form. It's like it just, I no, guess it just rides along with the seed in the virion form. That's right. It's dormant um, as because the seed is dormant, but it's there. And then as soon as the seed is germinated, the virus... Um, starts to replicate. And one interesting thing about those viruses, um, because I have actually now studied them quite a bit in plants. Uh, so anyway, one of the interesting things that we found, although we have not published it because it's quite hard to do the really careful experiments to prove it, but the virus infected seeds tend to have a lot longer shelf life. For instance, they will still be germinating uh, several years after they've been collected. 
Whereas if you have a virus-free version of the plant, the seeds don't last very long. So the, somehow the virus is affecting that longevity of the seed. Huh. Which, yeah. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I guess one of the other areas that I got very interested in and involved in was virus biodiversity. And that started with a, a meeting um, with an ecologist from Costa Rica named Dan Jansen, who was trying to organize in the 1990s, he was trying to organize a, what he called an all taxa biodiversity inventory of this area in Costa Rica. And his idea was to just, you know, inventory every living thing there. And um, of course, I asked him what he was going to do about viruses. And he didn't really have much of an answer for me, but that's how I got involved. And so we, over the years, have collected about, in all, about 12,000 individual plants that we've analyzed for viruses. Um, They have not all been analyzed. That turned out to be so much bigger of a project than I thought it was going to be that I never really was able to get them all analyzed, but we analyzed about 9,000 of them. And in, you find these persistent viruses are extremely common in plants. In fact, more common than acute viruses. And so that got me very interested in them. Why are they there? What are they doing? They've not been studied much at all because in general, they aren't related to any symptoms that we can find. And so people are always interested in the bad and not the good. You know, I think it's human nature. So nobody wanted to look at viruses that weren't causing disease. Um, so really those two studies, the one from Yellowstone and then finding all of these persistent viruses in plants kind of led me to start thinking about viruses quite differently. And that is to think about them as being also beneficial. So Yeah, I guess um, they, they, they have a tremendous potential to affect their hosts on an ongoing basis, certainly on an acute basis, but on an ongoing basis, like you said, allowing them to live in soils when the temperature is a lot hotter than normal and surviving a lot longer as a seed and I'm sure many other things, right? Yeah, so so I started to focus on those a little more and um, I guess I could tell you a couple stories about persistent viruses that we've published in the last few years. So one, um, one story is about pepper cryptic virus. This is a virus found in all jalapeno peppers and a few other hot peppers. Um, and also, actually, the progenitor of jalapeno peppers, chiltepin. And it's thought that these were domesticated about 10,000 years ago. So the same virus is still there in the progeny of this domestication, jalapeno pepper. And it's also still there in the ancestors, the chiltepin. So we think the virus has probably been in those plants for about 10,000 years. And one of the very interesting things we found with that virus is that it deters aphids. So there's been a lot of studies in recent years about how viruses change the volatile makeup of a plant and and then they attract aphids to the plant. And then this helps their transmission because they're transmitted by aphids. But in this case, with a persistent virus that's not transmitted by aphids or any other vector, they actually deter aphids. So if you have a virus-free version of the plant, you'll get a lot more aphids on that one than you will on the one with the virus. Some viruses cause the plant to attract aphids because they spread on aphids, and some do the opposite, to deter aphids. They deter aphids, and it's not clear. I mean, it's it's clearly a, a big benefit to the plant to deter the aphids. Aphids are never really good for plants. They They can transmit a lot of diseases beyond viruses. And then they also just, you know, they feed on the plants, and so they are they can be really damaging, especially if you have a lot of aphids on one plant. So anybody that's gardened has probably at some point in their life found a lot of aphids in their garden that can really destroy a crop. 
So this is another example of a beneficial virus. This virus confers um, this aphid resistance to the plant. So we think that probably many of these persistent viruses are linked to some beneficial traits. It's kind of hard to, to know what they are. For one thing, you would probably need to look at the plants in their native environment to see what those environmental conditions are and what the virus might be contributing to that. But I, I think that the, the basic idea is that it's not uncommon for a virus to be beneficial. And in fact, the, the viruses that are pathogens are probably quite rare overall in the grand scheme of viruses. And most viruses are probably what we would call commensal, meaning that they don't really cause any harm or, or really do any good, but they just are there um, as sort of a hitchhiker. So well, we the have viruses this, that are that are pathogenic. Do they stay that way very long, or do they move towards more of a commensal regime or beneficial well, one over time? Over time, we would expect them to become less and less pathogenic, but those times are can be fairly long. So um, it's not an advantage usually for a virus to make its host sick. This is an area that's been studied quite a lot. There's been a lot of modeling studies, etc., done about that and. You know, if a virus makes its host sick or it kills its host, that's the end of the life of the virus too. So if you're so sick that you have to stay home in bed, then the virus isn't getting transmitted to anybody. Um, so it's really in the long run, it's a disadvantage for the virus to make you that sick. One of the things we know that is in, in a lot of wildlife, we find viruses that are pathogens in humans, but are not pathogens in the wildlife. And it's likely because they've adapted to the wildlife and I guess there's at least a school of thought, which I tend to um, subscribe to myself, which is that when a virus jumps species, when it can, it's able to get into a new species, that's where it's the most likely to cause disease because it's not at all adapted to that host. Neither the host nor the virus are adapted to each other. So, so yes, I think that in, in general, um, you know, most viruses probably are not pathogens in their native environment, in their native host. They become pathogens because they're in the wrong host or the environmental conditions of the host might change and then they could become pathogens because of that. As well. hmm. Do you think uh, viruses are alive and do they have agency or you know, where do you stop? Well, um, that's always a question everybody likes to ask. First of all, maybe you could give me your definition of life. Um, well, it's just my opinion, but um, I think life has what I call like a multi-factor endowment. So one thing is that um, a living thing has at least some level of cognition. It can make choices and, you know, in the face of like arbitrary data or ambiguous data, it doesn't always act like a machine and only do one thing or another. Um, it has abilities. I don't know that come from where, but, you know, all living things seem to have like this, this ability, you know, this natural endowment of abilities, like a, a cow learning to stand within a minute of being born or a, you know, a baby, a baby learning how to nurse and suckle and grasp and things like that. I mean, those are some of the hallmarks. Um, I'm not sure what else, but uh, a virus seems to also. Oh, I, I would say well, not a virus, but I would say um, you know, a living thing has memory. It can learn from a past experience and take that with it. And uh, a living thing is deliberately adaptive. It's not just randomly buffeted about. And I think it's it's the, the agency of changes within it. It's not external. So those are just my beliefs from you know. You're, you're an anti-Darwinian, huh? <laughs> Anti-what? You're an anti-Darwinian. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I think that's like, uh, at best, way incomplete, and I think completely wrong, based on my experience. But. So um, th that's an interesting definition of life, 
by that definition, I would say viruses are not alive, but probably most bacteria would not be alive or a lot of other um, what we would call single cell organisms or, yeah. So, so that's, a, um, that's maybe a more philosophical definition of life rather than a biological definition. Well, what's your, what's your, as I'll turn it back on you, what's your definition of life and what's I, alive I and what's I, not? Yeah, so the, it's very hard to come up with a definition of life, which is why I usually ask people. When they ask me if viruses are alive, I ask them for their definition of life, and they rarely actually have one. So then I say, well, if you can tell me what life really is, I can tell you if viruses are alive or not. Um, but it's it's hard. It's it's a question that doesn't have a really an answer. There, It just depends on how you look at things. I think when a virus is in a cell, it's more closely, it's at least more similar to being alive. And there are some people that say that when a virus is infecting a cell, it's alive. And when it's not, it's dormant. It's like more like what you mentioned earlier about a seed or a spore. Um, so, but viruses have a huge impact on life and they may have been the beginning of life, you know? So they probably were involved in the very early stages of evolution. Yeah, it seems like... Um from the discussions I've had, they were like a vast library of information that, you know, can be used as tools by living things, by bacteria and you know, other creatures, but they're also living tools in that they act upon creatures and, and change them as well. It's weird. You know, I've, I've heard stories of uh, bacteria harnessing viruses and using like their spike protein to make their own spike to puncture other bacteria. And then, you know, viruses definitely seem to use cells as their own tools for their own ends so it's it's weird you know so that what a virus is involved in in or it's a virus is interested if you could use that word in replication and that's the main goal of a virus is to make more copies of itself um, and so it does whatever it needs to do in order to make that happen um, and so sometimes when when a virus is, has a stable relationship with its host then it has reached some balancing point where Making too many copies of itself is a disadvantage for it in the long run because if it kills its host, for example, as we said, then that's the end of the virus too. But really, I think a virus and perhaps all life is mostly interested in replication. When, do you think that when viruses are in cells, they're able to, I mean, take on some of the cell's abilities or, you know, like let's say a virus is in a, a phage is in a certain bacteria. Do you think it can tap into that bacteria's quorum sensing and other abilities to, uh, you know, to sense what's going on in other bacteria that are either infected or not infected? Um, well, viruses have ways of sensing things, I guess, in a sense. What, what they really do more than anything else is they take over things in the host. So they take over the machinery for making proteins. They take over the machinery for um, a variety of, you know, inserting proteins into membranes, things that they need to complete their life cycle. Um, in bacteria, many bacteriophage will, if they have a lytic cycle, which is when they're really actively replicating, they'll, they'll destroy the whole chromosome of the, vi of, of the bacteria in order to use the nucleotides for their own replication. And, they, and those bacteria are always killed by the virus. So, so, but then on the other hand, and the same virus can also establish a stable relationship with the bacteria where it integrates into the host genome, and then it's just there in a dormant state, but it can be activated. Then it becomes an advantage for the bacteria, not that specific bacterial cell, but for a colony of bacteria. They can, one, one member of the colony can 
produce a lot of phage, become lytic, and then they could, those viruses can potentially kill off the competitors. So then it becomes a beneficial virus for that host. Yeah, I've heard that, you know, I wonder. are complex. Yeah, they are. Like, what, like, why would a virus endogenize in a host versus just stay with it? You know, why would it spread sexually versus through coughing? Or, you know, why would it, uh, why wouldn't it just infect other other hosts instead of being passed on, you know, through, uh, you know, through reproduction. I mean, there, there's a lot of behaviors and right. Why is one evident in one and not in another? It's weird. Yeah. Well, you can find almost every imaginable lifestyle in viruses. There's, they're so diverse. There are so many of them. We have only really only started to study them. So there are many, many things that we don't know about viruses, much more than what we do know. And yeah, I think you can find, you know, they get transmitted by whatever way works for them. So what are, whatever what are some, is, you know. Yeah. Well, Go ahead. What, what are some of the big questions that you're trying to answer now? What's your recent research about, you know, what's your focus now? So I'm actually kind of winding down my program, my research program. Um, and I'm going to be closing my lab completely probably by the end of this year. But we are still working. Um, and one of our interest in, in uh, this recently has been working on a virus that infects a fungus that is killing a lot of bats in North America. So the disease in the bats is called white nose syndrome caused by a fungus and the fungus has a virus. So in this, this whole situation was first noticed in North America in about 2006 in New York state. Um, and it has since spread all over the Northeast and then slept to the south and west, as far as sort of the Midwest now. And fungus was is presumed to have been introduced to North America from Europe, perhaps at a single introduction point. And so the fungus has not had that much time to evolve. So it's very hard to follow the movement of the fungus by differences in the genome of the fungus. But the virus, which is another one of these persistent viruses, so does not transmit horizontally all only vertically in the fungus, that the virus has significant variation in its coat protein. So we were able to collect about 140 samples of the fungus from around the United States and look at the variation in the virus and then use that as a proxy for the movement of the fungus. Um, so we're just getting ready to publish a big study on that where we've looked at, by doing these analysis of the, what we call a phylogenetic analysis of the virus, we can now see, we can map how this virus has moved around the United States. What's been observed in, you know, like a, a real longitudinal look at a given virus in, in a given host, like, you know, I, I don't know what, what interesting things come out after a few years, after a few decades, after, if possible, a few hundred years, a few thousand years. Has anyone been able to look at a given virus over a really long period of time and see how it changes? Yeah, sure. So there's a whole field called paleovirology and what that involves is looking at viruses that are integrated into genomes so you know eight percent of our genome is a re is retrovirus in origin um, and then there are lots of other viruses there too and there are probably many more remnants of viruses that we can't really tell what they are because it's been so long ago but um, they what people have done is look at these integrated viruses and compare them to modern, you know, extant viruses. And that gives you like a fossil record in the genome of these viruses. So those, those kind of studies are pretty interesting. Um, 
Most of them have involved retroviruses so far, but not always. Um, I guess I think one of the most exciting things that has come out of some of those studies of integrated retroviruses is that the human placenta, well, actually the placenta of all mammals um, is there because of a virus gene. So there's a, a gene in the, that the virus makes, uh, or protein that the virus makes, which is syncytin, and that is what causes the formation of the placenta. So um, that's a virus that was integrated into, you know, our ancestral genomes million, uh, millions of years ago. Um, we don't know when. We do know that there are four different versions of it in different mammalian lineages. So it's not clear if it was integrated four different times or maybe a new one came in and displaced the original. Anyway, so those are examples of um, really long history of a virus associated with all mammals and, and, and actually providing a critical function for the host. Yeah, that's amazing to think that I think it's like 8% of our DNA is... Uh is viral DNA and the placenta is formed from viral proteins. And yeah, it's weird. It's amazing. You know, if only we could, well, uh, I'm just saying we couldn't be here without that. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's, that's what I mean. They're, they're like this library that no one yet can read of ability of information of all kinds of amazing things. You know, I wonder what you, you know, mm -hmm. what could, what could be done by incorporating, you know, various viral genes. There's so many of them that are unknown what they do, you know, Oh yeah, there's there, there's a whole an amazing amount of knowledge that we don't have yet about viruses, and I think as time goes on, we're gonna have a deeper understanding of beneficial viruses. People don't really want to think about them right now because everyone's very concerned about this new coronavirus. But um, so, but I really think that in in time, people will begin to understand viruses much like we now finally understand bacteria that most of them are beneficial. And the way we need the bacteria in our gut or we can't survive. And we also need our viruses or we won't survive. Either. So what, what do you think is going to be the near future for you? Are you um, retiring or are you just doing something else? Or like, you know, I don't know if you're well, going to say I'm, but... I guess I'm starting my encore career. I'm doing a lot more writing these days um, and I'm a lot of editing. So I, I edit um, a series. I'm an editor for a series called Advances in Virus Research, and we publish about three or four volumes every year of collections of reviews about viruses. Um, so I kind of see myself moving a little bit more into the, that role in the field of kind of not really saying anything, but, you know, just collecting information for people, looking at ways, interesting ways to put ideas together that will help people in the field. Um, so that's part of it. And, and I, I also, um, I don't know if I'm really quite done with working in the lab. I may, I'm actually going to set up a lab in my garage, I think, <laughs> and look for wild viruses in some very, I thought this project called Viruses of Really Weird Plants. So here on the Oregon coast, we have a couple of different groups of plants. One is we have these plants that are sometimes they're called um, uh, horsetail, I guess. They're a very primitive plant. So I thought it would be fun to see if they have any viruses. And then the other thing we have on the coast here are, are carnivorous plants. And people have not looked in carnivorous plants at all. And I'm very curious to see whether we might find some insect-like viruses in carnivorous plants since they eat insects, mm, um, whether yeah, they true. might have some like that. So, yeah, so maybe, I don't know. I have some opportunities to work with labs in this area. Um, 
although not right now since we're all kind of off work, but um, to do some kind of fun, fun little things that are not, that are hard to get funded. So I feel like I'm in a position where I can just work on some little fun project that is not going to be getting a big grant from the National Science Foundation or something because it's a little too weird. You know, they like things, they like to fund things that they know will provide significant answers to something. So this is more like a fishing trip, an exploration of what might be out there. Okay. Well, very cool. So what's the best way for people to, uh, you know, to, to see what you're doing? Um, well, I, I do still have a, um, an internet site, rusinklab.com. Um, and, or just Google, you know, there's Google okay. Scholar will come up with all my recent papers. Yeah. And when you open up your, your, your biosafety level four lab in your garage, you're going to give tours to people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the nice thing about plants is that they're all BSL one oh, okay. um, or less. Excellent. Yeah. So with a very few exceptions, there are a few plant pathogens that are a higher level of biosafety, but nothing is BSL four. So. Oh, okay. Well, bad job. Well, very yeah. good. Well, Marilyn, it's been good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. All right. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.